Listener Production. On the evening of November 16, 2005, John Aloisi walked towards the penalty spot with a nation's hopes resting on his shoulders. All I could hear were sort of whispers in the crowd. Is this it? Are we going? If he scores this? It was, it was that sort of surreal moment. This was a moment many people thought would end in failure again. I'm thinking derail. Everyone's thinking derail because it's happened too many times before. This is a story of hardship and sacrifice. Oh, mate, you know how many phone calls I had? Yeah, I was probably on the phone to my mum and saying that I wanted to come home, like, actually crying. It's a story of countless lost opportunities. Oh, it was... um, That's probably going to hurt for a very, very long time. This is the story of one kick... One moment. Here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup. It's football fever in America. World Cup is a celebration of humanity. That's the voice of Adam Peacock, host of Footy at Fox Sports, author of a wonderful book about the Socceroos called That Night and Footy Die Hard. But the overriding sense you get when you go there is that, wow, you're at the centre of this event for four weeks, which essentially stops the world. And certainly every time there's a match, two specific parts of the world stop and drop everything and it becomes everything to those people. And it's just a wonderful way to to celebrate um, the world's biggest sport in one big hit. We were kind of like the, the kids who were always locked outside and, and looking through the window, wishing we were inside in the warmth of uh, participating in a World Cup. To truly get the full picture of the story you're about to be told, you need a history lesson. And this one goes way back all the way to 1965, when the Socceroos first attempted to qualify for the World Cup. Of the four countries in the Asia-Oceana qualifying group, South Korea withdrew and South Africa, well, they were banned. Beauty, the Aussie lads would only have to knock off North Korea in a two-legged tie played in Cambodia and it was off to the 66 World Cup in England. The full-time North Koreans were coming off nearly 35 internationals in the previous three years. The Socceroos, well, our boys hadn't played a full-spec international in nearly seven years. Socceroos' Jeff Slate takes up the story. We went to Cairns in, in northern Queensland because it was considered to be a similar climate to that of Cambodia. And we played two friendly games, one against a northern Queensland amateur select team who we managed to beat 17-0 and one against a team from Ingham who we managed to beat 26-0. So we went off to play against North Korea feeling pretty good. Sadly, the old North Koreans brought a bit more to the table than Ingham. They were army guys. They were tougher than, than we were. I'm glad we were only playing them at football. They beat us 6-1 and, and the second game we lost 3-1. Four years later, with Mexico 1970 beckoning, the Socceroos took care of South Korea, Japan and Rhodesia, setting up a two-match series with Israel. The winner off to Mexico. Bueno. Pizza, pizza! 
That goal gave Israel the first leg at home. They then drew with the Socceroos in Sydney. Inside the final three minutes, Watkiss traps the ball and side puts a shot to score the equaliser. But Australia fails to add to their tally and it's a one-all draw. Thus, Israel is to go to Mexico in quest of soccer's greatest prize, the World Cup. I'm more Aussie now than they set for the lingo. Um, I've been here now for 29, 39, 46 years. Fisting, isn't it? Okay. Finally, this is where things take a bit of a turn for the better for the Socceroos with blokes like Peter Ollerton. I came across, offered a contract for two years uh, with a club called Ringwood Wilhelmina in uh, Victoria. Um, At that time, I wasn't too sure where Victoria was. Um, I knew where Australia was, but didn't know where Victoria was. Pete, a 19-year-old from Preston in England, was about to get a rude shock about the round ball code in Australia. When I came to Australia, when I first arrived, uh, this gentleman, Fred Hutchinson, picked me up from the airport and said, we're actually playing our game tomorrow and it's being played at Wembley Park. And of course, coming from England, Wembley Stadium, I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, uh, gee, I better be right for this. He said, now, I know you've got, uh, you've travelled a long way and you may have jet lag. And I said to him, what's jet lag? Uh, And he said, because I'd never been on an airplane before. And uh, he said, look, you just relax, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Anyway, the next day. And in our game, especially overseas, uh, it's very professional. And we used to dress up, shirt and tie, uh, suit, to go to the game professionally. Mm. And he, the guy said, look, I'll pick you up about, you know, one o'clock, kickoffs, three o'clock. And I thought to myself, well, Wembley Park, it'd have to be, you know, a nice stadium here. It's cut long story short, from Croydon to Box Hill took about 15, 20 minutes. And as we're driving in the back of the car, I'm looking for this stadium. <laughs> And of course, it's just—it's like a paddock, flat as a tag, and there was just like a tin shed. And when I got into the ground, I've got my bag and suit and shirt and tie, and these guys started drifting in with shorts and thongs and t-shirts, and I've gone to myself, whatever, whatever done here. Within no time, Pete was playing for Victoria against. Well, you're not going to believe who he was playing against. Gerson, as Pelé is running, is Pelé, Pelé now! Yes, there it is! That is the touch of a master! Uh, Santos of Brazil came across on tour from Brazil, and Pelé was the captain. So you played against Pelé? So I played against Pelé at Olympic Park. I think there was 30,000, 40,000. What was Pelé like? Pelly was a lovely man, a fantastic uh, player. Uh, I was very fortunate enough that after the game we went back to, uh, I think them days it could have been the Park Royal or something <laughs> like that. And uh, fortunate enough, I think I grabbed his shorts and his tie-ups and anything else I could grab from him. And I still think I have them somewhere or my son has somewhere. And um, spoke to him. His English wasn't fantastic. Uh, but as the night got on and we had a couple of drinks, he opened up a little bit and I found him to be a, a really, really, truly beautiful man. While Pete was beginning to make a name for himself, the Socceroos were fighting to qualify for the 1974 World Cup finals to be played in West Germany. This time, a two-legged tie versus South Korea 
would decide the fate of the green and gold. Tremendous effort there by Australia to get the ball in. It's a goal! Yes! After two matches, the teams couldn't be separated. So on November the 13th, 1973, a third match was played in Hong Kong. This one, winner takes all. Wilson's gone up in the middle. Peter Wilson is coming down in his direction. Headed to Rooney. A shot coming in. But that goal, you know, goes down in folklore as far as, uh, as if you know Australian players, the lowers remember that goal because that was a goal what got into Australia to uh, the World Cup in 74. A lot of people think Alawisi's goal, the penalty, was the first time Australia had ever qualified. But uh, if you look back in history, it wasn't. It's now 1974 and Pete has been selected to debut for the Socceroos against Uruguay in a couple of friendlies in Sydney and Melbourne. Were you Australian, Pete, or not? I'm not 100% sure. I think I was. <laughs> I, as I said to you before, I, I, I wasn't 100%. I can't really go back and reflect on going to a, a service or whatever you do to get your natural... Naturalisation. Yeah. Hmm. Different times, obviously. Nevertheless, in the second leg of the friendlies at the SCG, Pete scored an absolute corker. I am talking a genuine super goal. I actually picked the ball up in just outside our penalty spot and ran all the full length of the ground and took it round the keeper and put it back in the back of the net which made it 2-0. Now you're going to see one of the most amazing goals you've seen in international. There goes Ollerton away. There's the Uruguayan goalkeeper in the centre circle. And Ollerton can hardly believe his luck as he runs the whole length of the field. And basically, I think, cemented a spot for me to be in that 24 to travel to the uh, 74 World Cup. Good evening. Well, tomorrow, as if you didn't know, is the start of the 1974 World Cup. They say that the potential viewing audience around the world will be between 400 and 600 million people per game, with the pictures from Germany being beamed to 91 countries, truly a worldwide festival. What was the World Cup like as a footballer? Well, World Cup was fantastic. It's just something you can't imagine. Driving round with an Australian bus, with Australian supporters outside and people through all of Germany waving to you and banners and atmosphere and 24 hours TV and so on, so on. It's just something you, you really dream about and think, gee, I'd love to one day possibly play in a World Cup. Wouldn't that be nice? Or play in an FA Cup final or something like that. And it was a dream and as many times now, I'm 66 now, and I think to myself, did it really happen? But I'm very fortunate that I've got memorabilia around the house and people I meet sometimes in the street or people I haven't seen for long times remind me. And it's uh, fantastic memories. The 74 Socceroos were only part-time as at best. Team captain Peter Wilson was a car salesman. The squad also included truck drivers, a storeman and some tradies. Well, I can remember driving into the stadium to play West Germany and they were, it was probably an hour and a half to two hours before the game started and they were already on the training track doing sprints. And as we drove past, I said to one of my teammates, I said, have a look at these guys here. I said, they're, they're already uh, into it and we're sat on the bu- bus singing a song, uh, you know, uh, on the way to the game. I said, it, it, it just completely different level. Rabowski, Müller, Rabowski, Markus Oberrad, weil die Australier gestört haben, es ist und Tor! But 
uh, we went onto the ground and we got beat 3-0 with uh, West Germany who went on to win the World Cup that year so to be beaten 3-0 by them was a great achievement. The Socceroos also lost to East Germany and drew with Chile but the boys return home to a newfound respect. I think it really didn't really hit us till we uh, you know, came back in, into Australia where obviously the press were there and what like they'd never been before. Uh, people still couldn't believe that we'd qualified and um, we just made the most of it. I think we actually cut a record, a pop song about Australia and I think it's still around these days. I think I had one once but I can't remember where it's where it is now but we did a song yes what's it all about pete uh we're in us i can't really remember come now, on try for me i can't think of it but do you want to hear the song yeah of course you do it was called soccer to them socceroos we are the aussies and we're called the socceroos and if you are an aussie then you know we cannot lose you can't tell us we're beaten because we know those boys could play footy. So after 74, you're on the plane home thinking, well, I'll be at another World Cup. The Socceroos will be at the next World Cup. Definitely. Um, I thought it was a great opportunity for Australia and the country to kick on, maybe invest some money into the game and um, hopefully improve the standards. There was then this expectation in Australian football that it's just going to happen every time now and, and we'll just get to every World Cup and uh, we'll be right and the game will grow that way. It didn't quite work out like that. So, this is when our Socceroos history lesson becomes a painful one. It's full of near misses, disasters, stuff-ups and heartbreak and lots of it. So I went to the next level and went for the 78 World Cup. Now we, we finished up... Um, losing in Iran in front of 100,000 people 1-0 and uh, as the knockout match as the knockout match uh, which put us out the qualifiers So 1978 we missed, 1981, 82 was one of those ones which we just stuffed up. We played New Zealand in a in a game at the SCG that they needed to win. They bottled it. New Zealand beat us. They made Spain 1982. We missed out. The header in the back of the net. 2-0. New Zealand 2-0. Uh, 1985 in order to qualify for Mexico 86 against Scotland we wanted to play we had to play home and away to beat Scotland and they had Alex Ferguson actually as their their boss um, as well and they had some superb players in their midst at that time Kenny Dalglish played the first leg over there in Scotland tonight at Hampden Park we're not looking for saves but goals as Scotland aimed to build a big lead in their World Cup playoff with Australia a big Scotland lead in the first leg of their playoff against an Australian side unbeaten in six World Cup games so far, having conceded just two goals. Oh, yes. 
one way that Australian football decided to stuff things up was that um, we had the second leg at home. We had the advantage of having the second leg at home. And instead of coming out of Scotland in the middle of November, December and playing in a, in a warm climb and playing on a difficult pitch, Frank Arick, the coach of the time, actually wanted the game to be played in Darwin on a cow paddock at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But the Australian Soccer Federation for reasons unbeknownst to the players at the very least. They wanted to play up there in Darwin as well. John Cosmena tells the story that, uh, no, they decided to go where the comfy corporate suites were and make it easy for, for the Scots. They played it on a on a cold night. It was 10 degrees in Melbourne at Olympic Park on a beautiful surface. So the, the advantage was taken away. The, the advantage that you can get, right or otherwise, who cares? You, you've got that at your disposal. They didn't use it, so they missed out on that. Eighty-nine, a match we should have won against Israel at the Sydney Football Stadium. Stuff that up. Trouble here. Ali O'Hara can put this one away, and he will. The Israelis are leading. The forty thousand here is going to be stunned. Okay, okay, okay. Enough disasters for a while. In the words of Aussie songwriter Paul Kelly, in the hour of greater slaughter, the great avenger is being born. My dad was born in Italy. Right. His uh, his dad came over. I'm pretty sure in the the 50s, uh, four years before my old man and the rest of the family came out um, to yeah, just make enough money to, to bring him out. And, so he wouldn't uh, have seen his kids for four years? Yeah, four years. That's the voice of John Aloisi, born in Adelaide, Australia, in February 1976. Do you remember your first competitive game under under what? What would you have been? Oh, it would have been, uh, I reckon it was... I would have been five, and I'm not sure if it was under sevens because I don't think they had under fives back then. Um, But I remember I was more of a defender when I started playing, um, and then slowly, slowly I moved up the pitch. Howie. Hey, Tone, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Also born in Adelaide, Tony Vidmar. There was always a... um uh, an oval or a small piece of grass that we actually had our own mini World Cup. That small little oval launched Tony on quite the journey. All right, so this is a test. Okay, I could fail this. <laughs> uh, Adelaide City, Germinal Eckern, uh, Nuck Breda, Glasgow Rangers, Middlesbrough, Cardiff City, Central Coast Mariners. Whew, fair list of clubs, isn't it? Impressive. Hang on a minute, though. I'm skipping ahead. It's time I introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Mark Bresciano, who was born in Melbourne in 1980. I started playing at a club at the age of five, and that would have been with my older brother. Not sure, maybe the my father, obviously being Italian and football being the number one sport in his country, so maybe the passion came from him. Do you recall watching World Cups as a young bloke? Yeah. Which World Cups can you recall? Huh, all of them. Um, <laughs> so Italy was my team, and I used to get up early in the mornings and you know watch it with my father, my brothers, and always have a mates over watching the game together. And like growing up as a kid, I never saw Australia in the World Cup, so I couldn't even dream of playing in the World Cup because you know I never had that image or seen other Australians doing it. So that was way out of my. It wasn't even a thought, I don't think, you know, growing up as a kid. John Aloisi, on the other hand, well, Johnny could picture it. It was junior school. It was very early on. It might have even been year three. We had to write um, down um, what we wanted to be when we get older and and, uh, and put it in a vault and they buried it. And I'd oh, love like to know. time capsule. Yeah, time capsule, yeah. So I'd love to know where that is. But I, um, I actually remember writing that I'm going to be a professional soccer player. And, <laughs> uh, and then year five, I got uh, that probably 
arrogant about it that I thought that's it, that's my life, that I, at the end of the, the school year, I signed a, a paper and gave it to the teacher. I said, keep this because one day it will be uh, worth a bit of money. <laughs> In grade five, you're dishing out autographs, Johnny. John, Mark and Tony, they all had brothers and looking back now, you'd presume that they were standout juniors, best in the team, best in their club, that sort of thing. Turns out, though, the boys weren't even the best in their respective families. Some guys are standouts at junior level. Were you a standout or not? Don't be modest if you were. No, I, I won't be modest like this. No, you wouldn't have picked me to have any football career. Like, I think even just between us three, because I had uh, two brothers, I probably had the least um, ability at, at a younger age. My brother was more of a natural uh, yeah, um, player. And, and, and with most sports, my brother was pretty... He, as a cricketer, he was a better batter. He could uh, he could really smash a ball. I, I had to really work um, on everything that I did, you know, with, with sport. Um, and and it probably that drove me more because I knew I had to work hard. It's interesting, really, isn't it? And for anyone young listening at this point, it's amazing how many top-level athletes cite hard work rather than ability as their reason for excelling. Anyway, I digress. Back to it. Growing up, the boys, especially John, were learning some pretty harsh lessons. Lessons that would hold enormous ramifications for the game in Australia. You're going to shake your head at this one. Were you ever involved in penalty shootouts as a young kid? <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> it was. I was 14, um, involved in under 17 cup game with Adelaide City. Yeah. So a lot of the boys were older than me, and um, but uh, you know, I still was friends with them because I played with them the whole year. And uh, we made the quarterfinals. Uh, it was penalty shootout, and I was taking the fifth penalty. And uh, I remember that well because huh. from the halfway line to the penalty spot, I was shaking my legs. I felt felt like jelly. Uh, but it was a penalty to stay in um, and not to to actually win it. And uh, and I remember putting the ball down, going back to the 18-yard box, lining up, and and I had my sort of my run up. But I, you know, I hadn't practiced that many penalties, and I hit the ball, and then I heard a loud bang. But it was the advertising boards of the side of the goal, so I missed the goal completely. But the referee uh, whistled and said the keeper moved, and so I thought, oh, this is all right, lucky. And then I had the exact same penalty again and missed it. And um, and why I remember it so well is because not only did get knocked out, fourteen year old, but I remember walking the change room and. Guys that were older than me were crying, and, uh, and then I heard a loud scream. One of my teammates punched the wall, but at that time it was like uh, it looked like it was a wooden wall veneer or whatever it was, and uh, he he smacked it, but it was brick, solid brick behind, and smashed his wrist. And um, and I've never asked him how he felt when I was stepping up to take the penalty <laughs> against Uruguay because he would have been shitting himself, <laughs> or his wrist would have been sore. <laughs> So it's obviously a, a fairly traumatic memory in your mind because you described it to memory. the moment. It was a traumatic memory. And if I speak to those players, they would remember it as well because, you know, uh, when junior uh, soccer, there was, uh, you know, you're playing with your mates yeah. virtually. And uh, so uh, winning things at that level and that age is, is such a big, big thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was that devastated about it that uh, I said to myself, that's never going to happen again. That uh, if I ever get put in that position, I'm going to make sure that you know I score. And um, and to do that, I made sure I was prepared. And uh, and you know, looking back now, I could have gone the other way and gone, 
I'm never going to take a penalty again. I know, I know. The things that could have been, it makes you shake your head, doesn't it? I know exactly what you're thinking. What if a young John Aloisi had sworn off penalties? What effect would a decision like that have had on the future of Aussie football? Who knows? It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? So let's not. Being the older of our three heroes, Tony Vidmar was the first to make the leap to playing club football in Europe. And for Aussies, it was quite a leap. It was tough, it was uncompromising, and it was unfriendly. Yeah, that's not easy. It's uh, It definitely um, toughens you up. Um, you know, people saying, you know, what's an Australian doing here? Uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, back in 92, uh, what's an Aussie doing here playing football? Uh, where we were training, it was minus six, minus seven degrees. It was horrible. John Aloisi left home to pursue his football dream at 16 in Belgium. People don't care that much about you. It's, you know, uh, in Australia, you're a, you're a big fish in a small pond mm. there. You're just another player. And um, and if you don't do well, they, they don't even think twice of getting rid of you. So it's, it's you, you, you know that you have to look after yourself. There's no one that's going to help you and you've got no one to turn to. It was hard. What was that, hard about it? Oh, the language first. Um, the culture was completely different to what I was used to. Had no family. Really had no friends. Had to look after yourself. Had to look after myself. Um, at first, they they were you know supplying you know dinners, and I could go to a restaurant and eat. And um, and then you know the, the longer it went on, then I had to start cooking for myself. What were you uh, like in that area? Nah, terrible. That <laughs> <laughs> <I> was terrible. <laughs> Did you have a go-to meal or not? Oh yeah, pasta. <laughs> <laughs> so blow me down, Johnny. Surprise, surprise. It's either going to be pasta or cornflakes. Oh, one of the two. Yeah. Oh, well, the cornflakes one was a, an episode because I the, the, the first the breakfast I had, I had cornflakes. And I went to the, the supermarket to go get uh, sugar, but it was all in French. Yeah. I thought, yeah, this looks like sugar. Brought it home, put it on the, the cornflakes, it was salt. <laughs> <laughs> Man of the world. Man of the world. So that's how it was back then. It was it was not, you know, I, I look back and I don't know if I could do that all again. Well, my dream was just to play in the city. Yeah, you know, growing up as a kid, watching the games, getting up early, watching the Italian national team. And I don't know, something probably just hit me and, you know, that was my dream and I'd done everything I could to, to get to it. Mark's dream of playing in the Italian professional league, the Serie A, came true for him as a 19-year-old, but his dreams and actual reality were two very different things. Mate, they don't make it easy for you going over there for the first time, um, especially being Australian, going over there and trying to take a local's position in the team. So... You know, you got you had a lot of battles and players. I'm saying wasn't make, they weren't making it easy for you. There's a story goes round about you that you weren't able to change. Was that true? You couldn't change with the actual Correct. Italian players. Can you tell me that about that? What it was is because I went over there and I was youngish. So with the change room, they obviously had their first team change room where all the first team players and the experienced players changed into. And I remember I had to change with, I think he was African and probably another South American player, young boys. So there was three of us and we always had to change in a separate change rooms. Did you ever think huh. this is getting too much? Oh, mate, you know how many phone calls I had? Yeah, I was probably on the phone to my mum and saying that I wanted to come home, like actually crying and saying, you know, I don't want to... There's nothing here, like it's too hard or I can't see, you know, anything coming out of this. So, you know, I just wanted to come home, being lonely, not having anyone and being treated the way we were treated. 
So why didn't you come home, Mark? I think it was a dream as a kid. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't really give up anything unless I give it a good crack. So if I would have come home, I would have had regrets and I would have known that I didn't really give everything I had and I would have regretted it for the rest of my life, I think. 93, had to go the hard way, beat Canada on penalties. Farina, Brilliant. See you, Canada. Adios. Australia, 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 but, unfortunately, we're back on the Socceroos' tale of woe because now the Socceroos, with Tony Vidmar in the side, had to beat Argentina, the winner of that tie to qualify for the 94 World Cup in the US. Argentina? It was a, um, a, a fantastic uh, experience again, full house, um, you know, against... Uh, World Cup champions Argentina, who uh, didn't have a bad player in their uh, in their team. Here comes Maradona. Van there. Yeah, they had Maradona, one of the greatest of all time. Here comes a dangerous looking cross, and the goal! The goal for Argentina! A tremendous goal! A moment of magic! A moment that put the Socceroos down 1-0 at home. Yeah, it was... <laughs> It was unbelievable. Yeah, you can just. Yeah, it's a, it's probably a, something that uh, you'd uh, never forget on the same uh, same field of Maradona and uh, some of the things that uh, he did. Slater inside for Zilic. He's looking for the runner, and it's a good run from Vidmar. Against the odds, the Aussies equalised thanks to Tony Vidmar and his brother Aurelio, of all people. Uh, I've set uh, Aurelio up in the backyard a number of times that uh, it was uh, one of those that uh, happened again. Tony Vidmar inside! Yeah, there was a, uh, a great night for the family as well, you know, an assist and a goal scorer. But, yeah, there's always a but in this story. The Socceroos then had the away leg in Buenos Aires. La Argentina frente a Australia. El capitán Maradona. Falvo está en el área. Este es Batistuta. So, I guess you don't really need to speak Spanish to understand that lot. Maradona was a hero once again. Maestro. Gracias. Gracias, Diego. You just knocked the Socceroos out at the final hurdle again. In 97, less said about that, the better, the, uh, the Iran match at the MCG. 1997, Iran, the MCG. Not good. Not good at all. In fact, for mine, one of the worst nights in the history of Australian sport ever. You've been patiently listening to some of the previous disasters to before the Socceroos. Well, this one, this one is a full-scale bloody catastrophe. There is one place left. It will be filled by Iran or Australia. Tehran, Iran. 128,000 people in the house. This is the good part of the story. The chance here for Kewal. A goal for Australia. A brilliant start for the Socceroos. And it's Harry Kewell, the 19-year-old, who has opened the scoring. And the silence that 130,000 people can make 
is quite stunning here. Now made Vicky pulling it across. And it And so we get to the return leg at the MCG, the winner to go to France 1998. Australian football is poised to graduate to the highest strata in the world game. 85,000 people in at the MCG, which at that stage was the biggest crowd to ever attend a soccer match in Australia. And by gee, they had a lot to cheer about in the first 50 minutes. Tony Vidmar was playing, John Aloisi was on the bench, and SBS Australia, and by the way, without their help, we couldn't have told this entire story, SBS... They were doing a wonderful job covering the game. Vidmar will get there first. Supporting quickly is Lazaridis. Vidmar on his own. And I remember, you know, being on the bench and thinking, oh, we're going to go to the World Cup. This, how good is this? And, I, and I'm pretty sure quite a few other players out on the pitch felt the same. Little ball to the back post. Kewell's there. Back across. Two nil Australia. Emilio Vidal. We're two and a half minutes into the second half. We're well and truly on the way to France now, Paul. I remember the serial pest coming on the pitch oh, and Peter Hall. Yeah, and jumping on the on the goal and ripping down the net. And now I don't know, and you can't blame an individual, but that did break up that that game. And um, and after that, we weren't the same. Minor altercation from a spectator and the Iranian goal. He did a bit of damage to the netting on the goal there, and before the securities grabbed him and inflicted some damage of their own on the intruder. This is good for Australia because it gives them time to for it all to sink in. In fact, it wasn't good. It wasn't good at all. A five-minute delay to get rid of the intruder and fix the net. But then even even uh, players amongst that uh, who were on the field were already thinking about, um, about France. Um, and that was a distraction where we lost our focus and... and we probably got what we deserved in that last 10 minutes. It's easy. Given a little bit too much room and time to turn. Ali Doye going through. Danger here. Iran forward again. Two lunging saving tackles. They've lost the ball. Bosnich is out of his goal. Iran has scored. They say, Paul, the most dangerous score to lead by is 2-0 because uh, you appear to have the match wrapped up. The other team get one back, even though it hasn't been deserved on tonight's uh, general play. And suddenly the complexion of the game changes. Let's hope it doesn't, but this is the best period for Iran in the match. Ali Joye, the danger for Australia here, the flag's down! It's an equaliser for Iran! 2-2 here! Disaster for Australia! That is how quickly a football match can change. The referee looking at his watch again, the match is over. Is over. Heartbreak for Australian soccer. They have been beaten here at the MCG by the away goals rule, the cruelest of fates for the Socceroos.
the saddest of moments. Oh, it was. Um, there, there were again. There were a few people uh, upset. Probably even more so players who weren't uh, who weren't on the field or who uh, weren't in the squad. Um, and it was just complete silence. Uh, and just, you, you, I think you just wanted to rewind 90 minutes and, and, and start the game again. Um, complete, no one no one was talking. There was no, as I said, you only could hear from a few disappointed people that were uh, uh, crying, upset, um, and just probably realised that, you know, we just stuffed up on that, on that. And you can't take it back. What's happened has happened. Um, and that's probably going to hurt for a very, very long time. Take us into the rooms. Yeah, I can remember that there was a player in there that was um, that was sobbing that bad that it was it was like someone had died. The late great Johnny Warren, a champion for the round ball game when it desperately needed a champion in Australia. Johnny summed up the devastation with shattered poignance on SBS. We're all stunned. I'm sure the viewers are too. I mean, it is just so cruel and so unfair, uh, particularly to the boys. But all those people involved and have fought so long to establish our game uh, in this country and to see an Australian crowd tonight appreciate what our game's about and uh, and then to miss out is it's just so sad. And uh, for everyone in Australian football, not just the boys, especially them I know, but for everyone associated with the game. You know, the Mr and Mrs Bosnich has taken their kids to, to the football, the, the, all the things that go into it. All those clubs that have been so maligned who, uh, because of their ethnic backgrounds who have made that these are their players and their team have suffered so much and been discriminated against and still the game goes on. This opportunity which we should have was ours. And uh, what, what can we say? I mean, it's just, it's just so sad for everyone. It's sad for Australia. It's sad for Australian sport. But it's even sadder for those people who, who share our passion for the World Cup. By 2001, John, Mark and Tony were now all in the Socceroos setup. Beautiful. Once again, it came down to a sudden death two-legged playoff. This time versus Uruguay. The first leg of the tie was played in front of 85,000 people at the Melbourne Cricket Ground and broadcast on Channel 7. Kevin Musket, a Melbourne boy, focused, concentrating, scoring! With a 1-0 lead, the Socceroos headed to Montevideo. Now, you've got to understand, this was a talented, hardened group. Like Mark Bresciano, who was playing for Parma in Serie A at the time, these blokes were used to the hard edge of the professional game. There's weeks you lose, and, mate, I'm telling you, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even want to go out of your house and go and have a, a meal at a restaurant. They're just so fanatical, and I guess it's like a religion to them. Week in, week out, you have a good win, you walk down the street, you're a god. The next week you lose... They want to kill you. But nothing, and I mean nothing they'd experienced so far in their careers could have prepared them for what awaited in Uruguay. I was just, it was all, it was scary. Like, you know, we are just coming off the plane for the first time landing in Montevideo and just having that experience at the airport of trying to hold us up as much as they could at the airport, the bags, the luggage, the boots, just trying to find every excuse just to stuff up our routine, walking out of the airport, getting spat on, having all their fans waiting for us there, booing us, spitting on us, going onto the bus and just 
you know, they're making noises while we're trying to sleep. I ended up playing with two Uruguayans in uh, at Osasuna, and they told me that they did that. They they paid homeless people to come and abuse <laughs> abuse us, and so that um, did it put you on your heels. It did put us. It did put us on our heels. We we were. Well, what's going on here? The game, once again, did not go as planned. Silver on Murphy! That's how Channel 7 Australia called the first Uruguayan goal. This is how the local broadcaster called it. This is how they called the second Uruguayan goal. El centro, and now the third. La mantiene, recoba la bola para el Chenke, la bola para el Chenke. Yeah, we get the drift. Once again, the Socceroos had fallen just short. What I personally done, which is probably I haven't told anyone, is I kept one of the match balls. Why? Is because I wanted to remember that feeling, and I didn't want to feel that feeling four years down the track. So I kept that match ball, and I just placed it in my room for me just to remember what I went through and what I don't want to go through again. That's the end of part one of the moment featuring the Socceroos. Now, admittedly, it's been a pretty tough story so far, but don't worry, things are about to get better when you join us for part two. Listener.